It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 58, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Curtis Stone raises $100,000 of vegetables on just a third of an acre at Green City Acres in Kelowna, British Columbia. He's also the author of The Urban Farmer, an excellent text on growing food for profit on leased and borrowed land. Curtis came out of a career as a musician and tree planter to start his urban farming venture, and he's adapted the lessons he learned on the road and in the mountains to his farming career. Oh, and by the way, that third of an acre, he actually shrunk his farm in order to make more money. By focusing on the Pareto Principle, also known as the 80-20 rule, Curtis puts his attention on the right customers, the right crops, and the right techniques to maximize the output and the profits from his tiny acreage. In this episode, Curtis shares his tips for controlling weeds before you plant a crop, capturing and organizing information effectively, marketing at farmer's markets and to restaurants, and how to structure your farm to better serve yourself and your markets. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Curtis Stone, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, happy to be here, Chris. So glad you could join us today. I'd really like to start here with with your origin story, I, I actually was was just reviewing that at the beginning of your book and really enjoying kind of this story of of how you got into farming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, I guess it's unique in the sense that I don't have any previous experience or even exposure to farming. Um, I had spent most of my adult life up until about almost thirty, about twenty nine years old, from the time I was about. 13 pursuing a, a career in music and I pretty much set up everything in my life to to do that I was a, in a touring I was in touring bands when I was a, a teenager and then I went to study music at a at a college and I did a I did, pursued a degree in composition which I never finished but um I moved to a, the city of Montreal which is one of Canada's biggest cities and definitely a cultural hub to play in a band and just continue doing that I, I often tell people that, you know, you think farming's hard, try being a working musician because not only will you be <laughs> poor, but you'll probably be hungry. And I figured if I could get into farming, at least I could be, I could feed myself. So I'd be one step ahead. But, um, you know, it, it, it's a bit of a long story. I won't go on too long about it, but essentially I, um, had set my life up to be a musician and I really pigeonholed myself into that thinking that it was the only thing I wanted to do and it was the only thing I could do yet. I was constantly worried and concerned about the world at large, whether it be geopolitical issues, environmental issues. I consider myself somebody that suffered from uh, eco despair for almost my entire life, always being worried about the planet collapsing from, you know, ecological collapse kind of thing. And, 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 you know, here I was having all these opinions and values, and I was always getting in debates with people about political and environmental issues. Yet here I was just being a musician that's just an entertainer and just living that way and partying all the time, late nights, on the road. It's a very tough lifestyle to be a working musician because you've got to be on the road and gigging and you're not making a lot of money. And uh, there was one particular year, this was about 2007, maybe it was 2006. It was around the time that the, the, the recession started in the U.S. and Canada, or the global recession actually. There was a freezing rainstorm in 
in Montreal. And I don't know if you have those down where you live, but it's where you've got minus 30 degrees Celsius temperatures, so sub-zero temperatures, and you get a warm front that comes in and just drops rain, like torrential rain, and then it freezes on contact and everything turns to ice. So telephone lines are collapsing, trees are falling on cars, cars are crashing, people can't even walk. My door to my house was frozen shut. And there was about a three-day period where there couldn't really be there wasn't really anything coming into the city. So you go to the grocery stores and they were looking empty. Like they weren't empty like they are in, say, Venezuela right now. But you'd go down and you would, you couldn't you, – there wasn't a lot of stuff or the things that you wanted weren't there. And I started, it really started to make me think about how fragile our systems are, especially our food system. And because I was somebody that was a vegetarian for 17 years, I no longer am a vegetarian. But, but you know, I, I, I had these values. I wanted to eat organic and all this kind of stuff. And I started to think, you know, food production was something that I really wanted to take charge of in my own life. At that time, I was kind of romanticized being a, being a homesteader in that kind of context, buying some land, going and living off the land. And I set forth with a uh, five-year plan at that time was I was going to leave Montreal, I was going to go and learn about farming, save money for five years by doing tree planting, which is a, a very Canadian job, something that that I did for nine years and I could make it. Isn't it, isn't that like a citizenship requirement? <laughs> no, no, it, it'd be kind of cool if it was in a way, but no, it's not. It's, it's a job you can make a lot of money at. It's piecework. So we can make, I was making $500 a day doing that. And so I was able to save money and I originally wanted to buy land and then just go be a homesteader and kind of just like be a back to lander. But buying land in this province in British Columbia, where I was actually born and raised, came back to later in my life. Um, is very difficult to do. And so I just wanted to be a farmer and I, I realized more and more that I was really interested in ag and um, buying land was almost out of my reach. Even though I had been saving, I had some money, didn't have a ton of debt at the time and it just couldn't do it. And so I heard about people doing urban farming. I heard about these guys doing this thing called spin farming and I was really just blown away with what they were claiming because at the time, the spin farming people were claiming that somebody could make $100,000 on an acre. And I thought, wow, that seems ridiculous because I'd read Elliot Coleman's book and I'd read John Jevons book and, and I didn't think that was possible, but I looked into it and I found that people were doing it. And that's pretty much where I started. I, 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 I uh, did a sort of a trip of self-discovery. I rode my bike down the West coast of the U S all the way to Tijuana. I visited off-grid homesteads, eco villages, sustainable or, you know, intentional communities and, organic farms and I saw what people were doing and I saw it was possible and I was very inspired but it was more what I learned about myself on that trip that was more monumental in that if you wear your values on your sleeve and it's like this is who I am take it or leave it you'll kind of experience that old cliche if you build it they will come people will gravitate towards you and I I was serendipitous everywhere I went because I went down to the U.S. with a sort of dystopian view of Americans, which Canadians often have just based on mainstream media and propaganda and all that. And I know it's all BS, but I was totally inspired by how generous Americans were and, and just people in general. And now I travel all around the world teaching and I see this everywhere. Um, and, and so that made me say, you know what, I'm just going to try something and just go for it. And so I came back. I got some land, which is an urban lot, uh, because that's what was available to me. And I started farming that way using some of these biointensive techniques, and I made money at it. My first year, I mean, I started on $7,000 to get the basic infrastructure that I needed, and I made $22,000 my first year, and I doubled it every year for a period 
uh, until I, my farm kind of peaked out. And then I found there was a sweet spot. And now I'm kind of at that spot now. I'm on a third of an acre growing a sort of a select group of crops. So that kind of takes us where to we are today, essentially, in a, in a, in a really bundled up way. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to describe your life in, in uh, 25 words or less. You know? <laughs> uh, but, but so you started farming when? In, I started preparing land in the f- late summer of 2009. Okay. So, okay. so I've been farming commercially wow. for, I've completed six seasons. I'm going on to my seventh season now. All right. And you were really starting like right as everything economically was going truly into the toilet. T- totally, totally. And I think there was, I mean, there was a number of reasons that I was at the right place at the right time, but I believe that that was part of it. And I believe that it's still part of it today because people see what's going on in the world and, you know, we don't need to get into all the issues. I'm sure your listeners understand the issues, but a lot of people are being drawn to just the idea of growing food and taking control of one's life and also helping the community and, and, and providing a solution or some solutions, right? I don't have the solution for the, to fix the world, but I think uh, organic, sustainable agriculture, small-scale farming, urban farming in particular in my case is a solution that's addressing a lot of issues out there, whether they be food sovereignty, diversification, uh, food access, greening spaces that are just sitting there and, 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 and ultimately connecting people to the farm. Cause I think this is one thing that is huge today is that very few people know a farmer. I know more people that have studied philosophy, gender studies, and political science than I do farming and know anything <laughs> about farming. <laughs> and you don't even live in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> no. So I think that there's, there's a huge uh, niche for this. And then that was part of my success is that I was taking people's lawns and turning them into super productive mini farms. And that was very attractive and sort of romanticized to many people. And it pulled a lot of people to our cause and allowed us to really scale fast because we had so much support in the community. It's funny that you talk about scaling fast. I mean, you know, we usually wouldn't think of what of the scale that you're operating on as being an example of scaling up really. <laughs> well, it is with the uh, numbers. When you look at the profits that are like our farm makes a hundred thousand dollars on a third of an acre. Yeah. And when you say makes you, you're talking about your gross income, yeah, like absolutely. your total sales, a hundred thousand dollars on a third of an acre. Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's a lot of vegetables. It is, but it's a, it's about the right vegetables and the right customers and the right techniques. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And so the one thing that has been tried and true for us is sort of this rule of 80-20, the Pareto principle. What is the 20% of your customers or products or techniques that deliver 80% of your return or your yield? And so it's been a, it's been a consistent process of doubling down on those things and going towards the most open doors. Who wants to buy our stuff? Who wants to pay the best price? Let's go there. Well, so let's talk about this this piece about who wants to buy your stuff because Kelowna, British Columbia, is not exactly the place that I would think of when I when I think of starting an urban farm. I mean, it's a it's it's a city, but it's not a big city. No, no. And you're not exactly on the outskirts of of Vancouver or something like that. I mean, it really is. It's set off on its own. Yeah, 
I mean, it's it's not like you're a suburban farm. You're really, you know, you're really there in Kelowna, but Kelowna is its own thing. Yeah. Kelowna is like a medium. I would say it's a classified as a medium density city. It's not low density because it's not a small town. There's 140,000 people here. And seasonally, we have we have the population quadruples or more than that in the summer because of the tourism. We have a very thriving restaurant scene, a lot of field to fork restaurants, of a big culture around field to fork. So it's a, it's a really good place to be for that. We've also have great weather. I believe we have some of the best weather in Canada. We're one of the warmest climates in Canada. In fact, I think we are the Okanagan Valley. At least my bioregion is the warmest in Canada. So there's a lot of good things about it. The, th- the main thing that, that drew me to it as far as a marketplace to sell in is that there was nobody doing this. Yet I looked at the, I, the market research I did said there was a lot of demand for organic and local. So I always tell people, you know, don't walk into a saturated market. People think urban farming. They go, oh, let's go to Detroit. Let's go to San Francisco. Let's go to Vancouver. Let's go to New York City. It's like, no, go to the places where nobody's doing it so you can be the first mover. Would you say that that rule of thumb, you know, go someplace where nobody's doing this applies with a in a local foods marketplace or is it, is really urban farming as opposed to all of the farms that are on the outskirts of town or maybe coming in from an hour or two away, is it different enough that it's its own thing and that that's really the niche that you're occupying? I think it is, Chris. I mean, yes, and it all depends on the context. I mean, definitely the urban thing, there's there's some advantages and disadvantages to it. The advantages are, the primary advantage is that you have access to the marketplace. Because I live in the city and people physically see my farm sites, we don't have a problem selling our stuff because people walk by the plots and they go, this is cool. What a great idea. Where do I get your stuff? Um, You know, some disadvantages might be we're limited on what we can grow based on the size of our lots. So I'm not growing melons and potatoes and onions because that's just not logistically practical because those crops need more space to grow. They're often better managed with tractors anyways, and they take a long time to grow. Whereas some of the things that we specialize in, quick growing, high density, high yield, popular, high value crops, short dates to maturity, those things lend themselves well to the city. So there, you know, there's some, there's some advantage and disadvantage, but in my context, yes, the urban thing definitely was a part of it because it allowed me to showcase my farm to a lot of people in a small area in a short period of time. Right. So when you're starting up, that visibility issue just is almost non-existent for you because you're, like you say, you're there. Yeah. It's, if, I mean, I, I consult for farmers all over the United States and most of them aren't urban. I'm, I'm, I, I really help people with business and marketing and, and some of their production techniques. And it's the co- most common thing I see is farmers just can't access market, what, whatever that market is, whether it be a CSA, a farmer's market, restaurant, some kind of direct sales there, they have a hard time doing it because they're so removed. And a lot of people get into farming because they don't want to be the customer service type person. And this is where I think the urban farmer is a little bit different than the, your average market gardener is that you do need to, it does require a certain level of entrepreneurialism and customer service and sort of socializing with people that, you know, it's not necessarily for everybody, right? It's, it's, it's not a solution for everybody. And when you talk about that hundred thousand dollar sale figure on your third of an acre, then, um, how much of that are you taking home? Well, that's a good question. Um, 
I would say anywhere between 60 and 70%. Having said that, when it comes to my taxes and what I claim, um, you know, I've got all kinds of write-offs in there just like any other small business person would, right? I mean, it's not... Um, Absolutely. So when I when I break down when I do my workshops and I break down my farm revenues for people, I show them. Look, we have a seventy five percent profit margin. These are our expenses. This is what we spend on seed, fuel, labor, land leases, infrastructure costs, all that kind of stuff. So the way I run my farm now is that, frankly, Chris, our farm makes too much money. So what I do now is I'm I'm making pretty big asset purchases consistently. So I'm. I want to show a net zero, frankly. I want to show no profit. So I'm spending – I built a $30,000 passive solar greenhouse this last year. We bought a new vehicle. Um, I'm constantly putting money into the our farm now because I don't want to pay $20,000 in taxes. And this is nothing that no business person doesn't already do. Is not, There's nothing controversial or illegal about it whatsoever. But, um, you know, when somebody says net, it's kind of hard to define, right? It's like, do you mean net is what I personally take home after I tell the government and file my taxes or what our farm really makes? Well, I go back to I go back to what Paul Dietman said on the on the podcast and in the book that I wrote with him, Fearless Farm Finances, about, you know, what what is profit and it's really increasing asset value, you know, which can be hard. I mean, that can be a hard thing to measure, um, but it's certainly something that's very different than what you have on your, that shows up on your schedule F exactly. or, or the Canadian equivalent well, of schedule that's, F. That's it. And, that, and that's exactly where we're at. And, and, and if so, if you're asking me that, then it's about a, it's been 68 to 75%. And that's because our farm is cheap to operate, Chris. We're, we're tiny, right? We're a third of an acre. We're 15,000 square feet of production area. So I'm not including the, like, so my, the lot that I live on, the house that I own is a quarter acre lot. I'm not including, that's not all production. I'm, my house occupies 2,400 square feet. One of my greenhouses this much and so on and so forth. I might only have 3,000 square feet of production here. So when I say I'm on a third of an acre, that's what I'm talking about is, the beds that I've got planted, including the walkways and maybe a three foot perimeter around it, that's a block of land that's productive. That's what I count. And I, the reason I'm defining that awesome. is somebody always asks me. So like, that's how I actually <laughs> think it's, it's hugely important when you're talking about, about numbers, whether it's, you know, whether it's dollars or acres or pounds or whatever to define your terms, because everybody's got a different way. They look at that. Exactly. You know, what about employees? Do you, do you hire people to work with you on the farm? Yep. Totally. So I've, I've got one guy who's a prime, who's my primary operator. Um, I've had, I, my farm has been a different scale. So let me just go back a little bit. So three years ago, my farm was two and a half acres of intensive production. We had eight full-time people. So there was four partners and then four other full-time people. And the farm did near a quarter million in revenues that year, but we barely made any money because of all expenditures and all of our labor costs. Now I found the sweet spot of my farm. The way to make the most money in my context is to have the owner operator be the chief primary person running the operation. And that's me. Um, and so the farms, the year my farm did the most amount of money except last year was when I was working 40 hours a week and I had one part-time person working 16 hours a week. They'd primarily help me on a harvest day and my packing and portioning days. So about three days a week. That was really profitable. However, as you know, if you've run a farm, any of your listeners do too, that if you don't have the right people 
everything changes, right? If you, if you don't have the right labor, then the, then your labor costs can go through the roof. If you can find the right people, then it can be profitable. So now I actually have a person who works as many, sometimes even more hours than I do because he just absolutely crushes it. He's, he's, I've trained him for a full year. I've taught him everything. He's even managing customers now, restaurant accounts. He can do office work. So now I've got this person, it's the two of us running the show. So we can run our farm on a total of about 60 hours a week. Maybe that might be a little bit more in the setup phase and maybe a little bit less in the summer. Our summers are actually very steady. We actually work less hours than we do in the spring. Um, we can run it at 60 hours. And so that could vary from myself to him. I was writing a book last year, so I was only working 10, 20 hours a week on the farm where I had my primary guy and another guy to help at that point one or two days a week. So altogether, we can run our farm on 60 hours total if the people who are working are effective. Now that 60 hours a week of, of labor, does that include marketing or is that just production? Yeah, that includes standing at the farmer's market. So we do, a, we're, we're on Saturday for at the farmer's market for eight hours. And, um, that includes, you know, three or four hours of deliveries a week. Absolutely. It's all there. I mean, again, okay. that will fluctuate. That's an average, right? So yeah. there are times it's a little bit more. There are times that it's a little bit less. Oh, you know, I, I think it's the same in just about any business. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I know I've, I've got my hundred hour week still and I'm, you know, not farming right now, but you know, I also have my, I also have my 30 hour weeks and it's kind of nice when those happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one thing I'll say too, is I do a lot of things outside of my farm. So myself individually, I work 80 hours a week because I do consulting. I consult for multiple farms. I'm managing farms remotely. Uh, I manage an online course. I'm doing speaking gigs. I work a lot because I'm kind of a workaholic. But as far as my farm goes, I'm putting in 30 hours a week or less now at this point. Wow. And that's that's really impressive, Curtis. Well, it's the scale, right? And it's, it's all about that 80-20 thing is where do we get the most leverage? And it's taken time to figure this out, Chris, because I grinded it out for many years. I worked a hundred hours a week or more when I first started to get to where I am today. And it's all about scale because a lot of people think, Oh, Curtis, or they'll ask me, you know, you've got hundred thousand or a third of an acre. Why don't you just go to an acre? Then can't you make 300,000? It doesn't quite scale that way because I have found that the larger you go, the less dollar per square foot you'll make on your land. The smaller you go, the more dollar per square foot you'll make. And that's just because it forces you to make very conservative, calculated decisions when you have less resources available to you. You know, it, it's, it's, it's like many things in business. It's the language I'd use around that is it actually forces you to manage that much more intensively. Exactly. Exactly. You've talked a couple times about this about this eighty twenty rule, and I I think I think that's huge, right? And and I think it's it's something when you look around that that almost anywhere you look in your life, eighty percent of the results are coming from twenty percent of the effort, and you know, and other variations on that. So the challenge, though, is figuring out you know, which, which 20% of the work is it, which 20% of the crops is it, which 20% of the customers is it, and then figuring out how to focus on those effectively. Because, you know, I, th I think one of the, one of the arguments that you oftentimes hear is, 
and I, I see this not just in farming, but in other business areas that I pay attention to. People are like, well, I have to do this unprofitable thing yes. so that I so that so that I can get the customers in the door to do this profitable thing. Yep. Yep. That's a that's a super good point. And there's no question about it that's true. So um, you know, let's just say tasks on the farm, there's 80% of the tasks that really only bring 20% of the, the value. What we do, our strategy on our farm is to look at those things closely and then figure out a way, what is, what can we do as a bare minimum to get the benefit of that thing? So let's say it's a crop. Let's say there's some crops we have on our table at our farmer's market that don't really generate much revenue, but they do bring people in because I might, when people come and spend $20 or $40, they might get one of those and then they'll get a bunch of other stuff. So it's about what can I do to just get the benefit of bringing those people in, minimize that crop or that product so that it's there, but I don't have to do it in volume. And then what can I do in the field to actually streamline or reduce the labor in, with everything involved to get that product to market. And so a lot so of, give, a lot give of, me an example of that. Okay. So a, a lot of it has to do with, with using weeding, ma weed management techniques. So things such as any crops that we transplant on our farm, we've essentially eliminated weed from our farm. For, for example, we only spend about four hours a year managing weeds. And that's because we do everything preliminary. So as far as crops that are, say, lower value. So I'll give you, uh, here's one example, summer squash, patty pan squash, baby zucchinis. These are crops I grow for restaurants and I have at the market. And I don't really make much money on that crop. I make enough on it to justify growing it, but I don't make that much money on it. So what I've done to basically eliminate or mitigate all the the, the loose ends with it or the leaky bucket, if you will, of my energy inputs is to make that crop so simply managed that all I have to do is pick it to take it to market. So what that involves is using landscape fabrics. We use, we use essentially a, a weed barrier mats on every crop we do. That's a transplant crop. We have weed mats on it with drip irrigation underneath it. That way, all we have to do is plant that crop and let it grow and then harvest it. We don't have any management to do on that field at all for those particular crops. We pick them and take them to market. So we've eliminated a lot of things because I, I, I farmed relatively large scale for, an, for, a, for a market garden like us doing intensive production. I farmed two and a half acres and we would do summer squash and all these things. And, but we would have to go through and hoe cultivate these beds all the time. You know, at least once a week, somebody would be going through and making a pass with a stirrup hoe or, an, or a collinear hoe, you know, doing that, which is very common for farming, but that's work that doesn't pay. So that's a big part of our strategy on our farm is focus on the tasks that have a measurable return. So for us, that's anything to do with selling, anything to do with planting, anything to do with harvesting. Everything else has to be mitigated or eliminated. So like, like you said, there's some things that you need to do to get things to market. So we still have to do those, but what can we do to greatly reduce them and, 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 and also reduce the amount that we do just so we can have it to get the benefit of having it? Well, and I'm thinking even there, what you're talking about, the pictures that I've seen of your farm, when you're growing that squash on weed barrier, you're not doing it on individual beds of plastic where the 
where the footpaths have to be managed for the weeds. You guys are actually spreading out broad sheets. Yep. If I if I'm remembering how I Absolutely. saw that picture right, so you've got you've got paths, you've got beds, but you but there's not there's not this thing that happens when you're doing something covered you know with just a single bed of plastic where now you've got this weed control issue in the wheel tracks or in the footpaths. That's right. And so, and I mean that a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're not using a tractor too, right? Like we, we're a small farm, so we don't have to worry about those wheel paths that most tractors do. Cause you, you can't put down landscape fabric and then have a tractor go over it. You'll destroy it, right? That's just not right. going to work. So part of what we're doing is lending itself directly to our scale. And it's all about, you know, what is my function? My function on my farm is to Focus on planting, harvesting, and marketing. That's it. Everything else is eliminated or mitigated. And so that our, our function is that we're a small market garden. We need access. We need to get in and out quickly of all of our plots. How do we set those plots up to accommodate that? And what does that look like on the field? And for the most part, it's using fabrics, weed barrier for all transplanted crops, and then using aggressive stale seed bedding techniques to reduce to eliminate weeds on beds that are direct seeded. So for us, that's employing the use of tarps to do pre-emergent weeding and then using a flame weeder to eradicate those weeds when we need to get into those areas quickly. And this has reduced the amount of weed pressure on our farm so much that we only spend four hours a year managing weeds. Like there's, there's really no time where we're out pulling weeds. It might happen in one anomalous time in the season. The summer, a bunch of weed pressure blows in. Sometimes you can't affect, you can't change that. But, you know, if you ask most organic farmers, they'll tell you that they'll probably spend at least 30% of their labor allocation managing weeds. Well, and especially when you're doing the kinds of intensive production that you are. I mean, you've got those solid seeded salad beds, say that six times fast, (laughs) solid seeded salad beds that are, you know, that you're harvesting with that that quick cut greens harvester, yep. which has the has the blade and the and the ropes that go around and around and kind of push things back in. You can't have weeds in that sort of an no, environment. You just, you're going to spend more time picking through them. And I mean, that you know, mentioning that tool is important, too, because a big part of what where we're at is just employing appropriate technology. I mean, it's it's huge for us. The tarps, the flame weeders, the greens harvester. These tools save us hundreds of hours a year in labor. Like just the quick cut greens harvester alone saves me 100 hours because what used to take two people four hours to harvest all the greens in a week, so that total of eight hours of labor to get all of our greens in a, in a week of marketing can now be done in 30 to 45 minutes by one person. So it's a massive labor-saving device, but you're right. It isn't really worth that much unless you're using it properly, and that means you've got to do stale seed bed, and you have to make sure those beds don't have weeds in them. So what are some other tricks that have helped you capitalize on the 80-20 rule? Well, it's really, it's the, the biggest thing is about products and customers. Um, so here's one example. In my fourth year of farming, my farm was big. It was near two and a half acres. We had 90 products that we grew that year. And I dumped all of those crops into a spreadsheet. And spreadsheets is something I have an entire chapter on my book. And I think it's incredibly important for farmers to learn about and use information. But uh, I put all those crops into a spreadsheet. And I sorted them by their profits, how much crop, how much money each crop make. I found, Chris, there was about 10 crops that made about 80% of the revenue of the farm that year out of 90 products. And those 10 products were grown on a quarter acre of land. So at this point, you know, I was kind of getting, I was burning out on idealism, burning out on saying, I want to grow everything and feed the entire community. It was like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I was working 100 hours a week that year. 
what can I do to just craft a better quality of life for myself and still offer value to the community? And it was to focus on these 10 crops. So I scaled down to a third of an acre that year, focused on those 10 crops, didn't work more than 40 hours the next year, made way more profit for myself than I did. And that, that's a big one. The other one is the, is the customers. Focusing in on who are the customers that bring the most sales or the lowest maintenance or the easiest to deal with that are enjoyable, that share your values and just focusing in on them. And that could be restaurant customers, CSA customers, or even farmer's market customers. I make notes all the time. And this is one thing I'm a, I'm a big supporter of farmers doing more of is, is harvesting information. Because just like seeds, you know, when you harvest a seed crop, you've got to thresh it, clean it, and do all this other preliminary work to make sure that that seed can be used effectively. Information is is the exact same way. If you just have a paper journal on your farm and you're writing down notes with your dirty hands in the rain, you go to flip through that journal in the winter, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But if you can create habits where you're harvesting information and putting it into a system with the spreadsheets is what I encourage people to use. You can sort and look at that information and review it so that you can use it to speculate on the future and also figure out what's working and what isn't so that you can continuously double down on the things that do work and eliminate or mitigate the things that aren't. So talk to me about the workflow on that, because this is actually something that I, I teach workshops on time management for farmers. And a lot of time management for farmers is really information management for farmers. It's, you know, it's noticing what has your attention and getting that into a system that makes sure that it gets dealt with in a timely fashion before it turns into a problem. Well, yeah. And yeah. And so and and I and I'll, you know. My system when I was farming, and it's still what I basically use now, is to you know I take those notes and I happen to do them on a on a pocket notebook that I that I like to carry around, yep. and I take all those things, I throw them in my inbox on my desk, and then once a day I sit down and I go through them and I and I do exactly what you talked about. I look at it and I go, you know, is this worth anything? What's the value of it? If it is valuable, what do I need to do with it so that it retains its value? Um, and that's my thing. Yeah. But a lot of people look at me and go like, you're crazy. I don't have time to do that. <laughs> well, okay. So there's there's two two things I'll comment on that. First one is, yes, I do exactly what you're talking about. I just use my smartphone. My smartphone is my most used tool on my farm. I use it more than a greens harvester, flame weeder, stirrup hoe, anything. It's the most used tool on my farm. So I do exactly what you do, but I just use a program called Evernote, which you know I have a series of notes like field notes, planting notes, harvest notes, things like that, general notes. And twice a week, I spend about a half hour and two blocks logging those notes into spreadsheets. So I essentially do the same thing you do. Um, the other thing that's very important is figuring out where you optimize your effectiveness versus your efficiency. This is one thing I see most farmers fail on as well as most people in business. So many people are perfectionists. They're always trying to do the exact thing, the, the perfect thing, whatever that task is. And it it's often not worth it. It's like for example, if you take a glass of water and you turn on the tap and you fill that glass up, it will go to the top really quickly, but about 20% of it or more is just bubbles. So if you want to get that glass that fill that water right to the brim, you got to slow the tap down and then and get to get it right perfect. There's sort of a a curve where if you take on the bottom 0 to 100%, that's your timeline. How long does it take to accomplish this task? And then on the top axis going up, you have zero to hundred percent of the quality. Most things, in my opinion, 
are good enough at 80%. And 80%, just like the glass of water, can be achieved in about 50% of the time. So if you're consistently striving for 100%, you're going to, that, that last 20% is going to take you just as long to achieve as it took to get from zero to 80. So for example, when we're bagging salad mix for the market, we're doing four ounce bags to market. If it's 4.5, good enough. If it's five, good enough. If it's 4.2, good enough. You know what I mean? It's, we never try to be under. We always try to be over. But where's the good enough point? Because most people won't know the difference between 80 and 100%. I mean, you have to find out what's perfect for you to get that product or deliver that service to market so that people aren't complaining, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to offer a a quality product at a fair price or service or whatever we're doing. But where's the good enough point? And for us, that's the biggest part of it as far as being effective and efficient with managing our time on the farm is what's good enough? You know, does it, is it really, when we're transplanting in the field, you know, I, I teach new people and they're putting in plugs into the ground and they we do we got to do a lettuce bed where we have 200 plugs in a 25 foot bed and somebody's putting it in they're sticking it in the ground nice and easy gently nursing the soil around it packing it down it's like for me green side up man slam it in close the hole good enough green side up what when you water it in it's going to get closed up anyways so it's always looking at every single task and looking for where that sweet spot is. I really think that's some great advice. And I mean, I think about that bagging thing and a lot of that must have to do for you with a labor management that you don't have huge crews that you have to manage. So, you know, I've seen with we did a lot of packaging on my farm, bagging salad greens, putting fresh herbs in clamshells, getting people to just be like, yeah, I got enough in there to meet the minimum weight and now I'm going to close the clamshell. Um was one of the hardest management tasks that we had. And I've seen it again and again on farms that I've worked with uh, that that they people do. They get hung up on trying to get the bag exactly right. Yeah. And like we found with the with the with the fresh herbs, it was so much cheaper to over harvest. You know, I would I would actually rather harvest an extra 15, 25 yep. percent than and 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 be up putting that in clamshells and be putting too much in every clamshell because harvesting it was cheap. Exactly. Bagging it was expensive. Exactly. I think that probably part of what's working on your farm is that you guys are a, a, a lean labor operation. Yes. You know, you don't have a crew of 10 people that you're trying to teach every last one of them how to put things in bags. No. You got one guy and you. That's it. We're super lean. I mean, here's another example of, of this sort of lean approach. We don't harvest to order. We harvest when crops are ready. So everything on our farm is unitized. Like we use a standardized bed, 30 inch by 25 feet. You know, there's some beds that are a little bit longer, some beds that are a little bit shorter. But when I go out in the field, like salad mix is a big part of what we do. And I go out in the field and I see a bed of red Russian kale. It's perfect. This might be on a Monday. Generally, we want to harvest on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and then and then we do some washing on Thursday, and then we pack on Friday. That's all we do. But if I go out in the field on Monday, and, and my plan is to plant and turn beds over on Monday, if I go out and I see a bed of red Russian kale that's perfect, it's the perfect size, and if I cut it now, I'll get a better regeneration, or I might be able to turn that bed over immediately. I'll do that. So we're constantly willing to change our workflow based on what's going to be best for optimizing the perfect crop with the least amount of time uh, processing it. So for example, I will do everything I can on my farm to avoid washing salad mix. If that means that I have to harvest on Monday and Tuesday and put it in the cooler and sell it on Friday, I'll do that. 
Because if I look at the weather and see that, oh man, it's going to rain on Wednesday and Thursday, I'll harvest my greens Monday and Tuesday and I'll do bed prep on, on Wednesday and Thursday. Because I, if I can save washing a bunch of muddy greens, that can save us 10 hours a week on the farm. So we're constantly looking at what we can do to optimize our labor. And often, you know, the, 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 the other part of that example is that if I can harvest that bed now, because some of the crops we grow, Chris, in the summer are 18 days to maturity. Red Russian kale, arugula, a lot of our baby greens, we're seeding them. And in, in our summer, we got 18 and a half hours of daylight, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, ready in 18 days. Some of them in the summer are a one-shot deal. We harvest them and we turn them over. So I'll harvest that bed to get optimum size, optimum price point, and optimum quality, and then I'll turn it over immediately and plant something else. So that way I'm optimizing my production and I'm optimizing my time because I'm there to do it now. Now, part of that is that you've got an infrastructure that supports that, right? Absolutely. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't be harvesting greens on Monday to sell on Saturday if you're picking them and storing them in your basement. No, 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 this is the thing. You have to have a walk-in cooler. If you want to be a commercial farm and you want to be profitable, if you don't have a walk-in cooler, you won't be. You will be saving a lot of wasted time. This is one thing. All these farmers seem to think they can cheap out on that. No way. Our walk-in cooler, Chris, is the most important, hands down, most important piece of infrastructure on our farm. Without it, we would not be able to make the profits we do and work the amount of hours we do. Impossible. Because it would force us to do everything on Friday before deliveries and, and markets. And that is inefficient because if the weather is crappy on that day, then everything is prolonged. And farmers ultimately, at the end of the day, are always battling nature, right? We are fighting weather. So if the weather sucks, which is often the case, then you get you can push your week. You're hoping for a 40-hour week. It just turned into a to a 60 or 70-hour week. Well, and it and it completely changes. I mean, you talk about turning into a 60 or 70-hour week. You can't do that between Friday morning and Saturday morning for farmers market if you're going to show up at market and be effective. You know, you you just you simply there just aren't that many hours in that in that time frame to expand that much work. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, but this is Chris. This is like the biggest burnout. Um, part for most market gardeners. And that's why you come to a farmer's market in midsummer. And a lot of those growers look shell-shocked because yeah. they have been putting in a 20 hour day on Friday to cram everything into market. They put it in the barn for the night and then they take it to the, the market and then they're not effective. It's exactly what you said. They're not effective. And this is where that curve that I was explaining where, where does your effectiveness optimize to your efficiency? And most people don't have any idea of how that works and they spend time on things that aren't that important and then they're not effective at the market because if you've done markets or any of your listeners have done markets and i'm sure most of them have is if you're not on your ball at your market you will not sell stuff if you're bagged and you're all wiped out and shell-shocked and you can't engage with customers you're not selling stuff people go to farmer's market for that kind of experience right yeah and and I always think of of the guys in in the fish market in Seattle who do the you know who are throwing the fish yep. and how much that draws in doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the fish but it's the entertainment and the show and that's what people go there for and and clearly that's something that works for that company Absolutely. so that's it's driving sales and we used to take that kind of an approach at farmers market we were always looking for ways to you know anytime you can create energy at your stand yes 
it draws people in. But you have to have something left if you're going to create energy. Absolutely. You can't, you can't do it when the tank's empty. That's exactly it. And and I mean, that, you know, that's a big thing that I talk about when, in my workshops and my lectures is how do you create energy? How do you optimize what you need to do at the market, but also create an energy and a vibe that people find inviting. One thing I do is I follow that old farming cliche, pilot high, watch it fly. So in order to do that, I need to continuously reshape my physical space, my tables to create the illusion of abundance. So it's, I, I'm standing there, Chris, I don't sit down at my market, ne- neither, n- neither do I really stop. Like farmer's market's the most energy intensive work we do on our farm because I don't stop moving around. Every time something's selling out, I, 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 I pack it up to the next thing. So if I, if I only have two bunches of radishes left, they're consolidated between two other items so that it looks like a pile of stuff. And you know, that is, that, that's, that helps the human subconscious because human beings, we're kind of like crows, you know, like we're attracted to piles of stuff and shiny things and, and energy and movement. And so that allows me to stay focused at my market because I'm moving stuff around and I'm, I'm focused on a task and, and people find that attractive, but it also creates the illusion of abundance. But the other thing that we do to help with that is we have a very simple pricing system. Like we price everything at three, $3 units or two for five. And so when people come to my market and they're buying stuff from me and I'm moving around, I don't have to dedicate any brain power to calculating what they're buying. I, oh, they got four items. Okay. 10 bucks. You got six items, 15 bucks. Easy. That way I can stay engaged in what I'm doing. Also talking to them and delivering value to them outside of what I'm just selling. Cause at the end of the day, if you're a market gardener, you're selling more than a product, right? Your product's got to be good. It's got to be fairly priced. But at the end of the day, people come because they want to associate with the culture and the idea of what you're doing. And if you can't deliver on that end by, you know, telling them, they ask you, how do I use this? How do I cook it? You got to know that stuff. How do, how do you grow this in your garden? You got to know that stuff and you got to be prepared to deliver that value because we want to deliver more than a product. And that's what, that's where our niche is. And then again, that's where our 80, 20 is. Who are those customers that come to my market? and are going to spend $40 each time. That's who I'm going to really deliver a lot of value to. I'm also going to use them as, an, as a research and development team. I'm going to continuously offer them new things like, oh, here, here's a new salad mix. Take this for free. Let me know what you think. And then they come back next week and they tell you. And so we continuously double down on increasing our sales to those customers. Well, and I think that's so important. I remember one of the things I used to do when I was first starting at farmer's market working for other growers was was spending a lot of time trying to get every customer that came by to stop in and buy something. And and a lot of times it was to it was to the detriment of the people that were already there. Exactly. And the people that already made the decision to buy. And and finally I had a farmer say to me, I I don't remember who it was, but it was one of the people I worked with at market who said, you know, you gotta focus on the people that are the, the people that are here buying. Yep. You know, and you got to sell them more of what they're already getting. And again, I think about that when you talk about being on your game at farmer's market, have the energy left to do that, because I'm sure you do this, too, is, you know, somebody's buying tomatoes, you sell them basil. Yeah. You know, I mean, and and again, if you're not if you're not there and alive and snappy, it's really hard to to put in 
that extra 20% of effort to do that upselling. Yeah, exactly. And those are free, those are almost free sales. Exactly. But in the other part of it too, is that there's a, there's that other old cliche, a satisfied customer is your best salesman. If you know how to be effective with your core group of customers, and it's for us, it is literally 20% of our customers that come day to day on our market. If you know how to be effective with them and deliver them value, they will continuously bring delighted and excited customers to your market consistently. All you got to do is, is bring value to them. So what I tell people to do is if you're selling at a market for the first time, have a notepad with you. And for the first couple of weeks, you're at that market, write down the names of the 10 customers that have come every time, write down their names, get to know them. There's nothing fake or pretentious about it. Get to know them because generally they're probably people that share your values anyways. And when they come next time, Hey, Alex, how you doing, brother? Come on in. Like, and, and just offer them value. Get to know them. Give them free samples of new things that you're trying. If they ever complain about something, give them what they paid for plus something extra. Continuously bring value to them. And then they'll, the next thing you know, they'll be bringing their best friend. They'll be bringing their neighbor. They'll be bringing their family. They'll be introducing you to, to their friends and family as if you were their friend. And it's really easy. And this is what I like about farmer's markets is in a way, it's a, it's the best blueprint for just how to do business in the real world. Because it's like, this is the ecosystem of minds all coming together in this one place, in this community. It's a focused demographic. If you want to learn a lot about where you are and what people want, you can learn a ton of it at a market. Well, and I just, I also love the fact that it's, that it's just, it's raw capitalism, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, I've got a product. Do you want to buy it or not? Absolutely. And it's such a fast way to learn what you're good at, what the, what people are wanting in the marketplace, where the holes are, because if you're, you know, if you're a mediocre salad mix grower, you're not, and, and you've got a good grower at market, you're not going to be selling much salad mix and it shows exactly. instantly. Exactly. I mean, I even tell people too, like, you know, fastest way to do some market research at a farmer's market is if you're not selling at that market yet, but it's prospective one and you think you'd like to go to that market in the morning, take pictures and make notes about what's on the tables, come back an hour before closing and see what's left on the tables. The things that's left that. on the tables are the things that you probably shouldn't grow unless you're confident you can offer it in a different way that nobody else is doing and that you've got a product that will, that will outpace theirs. But you know, there's so much you could learn at a farmer's market. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. Curtis, with that, we're going to stop here and get a word from our sponsors. And then when we come back, I want to talk some more about this pricing strategy and how you implement that. And I also want to make sure we spend some time talking about walk-in coolers. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock-full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges organic growers face, and combine that with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant sciences and an intuitive comprehension that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost inhaling deeply as though they were sampling a fine brandy. Vermont compost is the real thing built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. 
Oh, and the donkeys are the real thing. You get a little bit of donkey manure on every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it's a truly superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're back with Curtis Stone from Green City Acres. He's also the author of The Urban Farmer. We were talking about pricing at farmer's market before we before we went to break, and I'm really curious about what you just said, because this feels like a really I, – I, well, I'm sitting here going, well, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> that you, you do everything at $3 a unit or two for $5. So you must be packaging things up or bundling things in such a way that you have you know $3 worth of value in every unit. Yeah, totally. Well, it's actually $2.50 of value in each unit. So the three, the $3 in a way is kind of fogging the price. So it's like if somebody wants to buy one item, they're getting a $2.50 item for $3, which is fine, but it discourages people to do that, right? So it incentivizes larger volume purchases. Um, but really what it does is it just simplifies the transactions. And that's like nobody, com- we rarely get people to complain about our prices. I mean, our prices are very fair compared to what everybody else is charging. But people like the simplicity because they just show up at the market and they think, what can I get for five bucks? It, like they don't even exercise the $3 item. Like, I would say we probably do five to 10% of our sales at $3 items on a given day at the market. Most people, even new customers are going to do two. So it incentivizes volume purchases, but essentially it just makes it easier for me to focus on other things so I don't have to stand there and count up money. And I I mean, I didn't invent this, this system up. Many farmers have been doing this for years, but I really came to it because I would look at other vendors and see these long lineups of, you know, somebody's at the market scale there, people walk up with their products, they're weighing it out. Your transaction time is minutes for each customer, whereas it could be seconds. And, 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 and the beauty of it is, is that it consistently allows me to offer more value to them because they're talking to me. We've already made the exchange. They showed me the product. They gave me the money. It's done. I'm, all I'm doing is talking about how they can use this kohlrabi or these spring onions or whatever it is in their recipe or how I grow them. It's like the transaction is a second and I'm just delivering more value. And so it allows me to really build customer rapport. That's ultimately what it's about is it allows me to build customer rapport and build friendships than just focusing on transactions that can often be uncomfortable. And when you see those lineups of people, you'll see people at the back starting to leave because they're frustrated. And and having said that, there there is some truth that lineups draw more lineups. Like there is something to be said about a crowd drawing a crowd, but the way I do it 
is by just talking and vocalizing, and then people want to hear what I have to say, but the transactions are happening, happening quickly. Well, and you're never stuck running the abacus behind your eyeballs. Exactly. You know, you're not, you're not having to think through stuff with that glazed look on your face. Exactly. So it, it, you know, it does require more packing. Like we, you know, we've got to pack everything up. We don't, the only, you know, there's only some items that that doesn't work for Say it's like heirloom tomatoes. Um, actually that's really about it. Out of all the products we grow, that's the only thing we can't really put in that pricing scheme is like a, a heirloom tomato. Cause some tomatoes will, you know, be so big that they'll cost $6, right? So that doesn't right. work in that pricing scheme, but we always just put those things on another part of the table. So it's easy to say everything here is two for five. All that stuff is individually priced. And and then for those for those tomatoes, do you are you pricing each tomato, or are you guys weighing we'll those weigh, out at market? Those we weigh out at market. We let them pick which ones they want. They go in the scale, and then and and just I mean just a little nitty gritty detail here, but so if somebody buys a bunch of carrots and a bunch of radishes, is that is that two three dollar things, or is that one five dollar thing? That's two three dollar things for five dollars. So that's the thing is like the radishes might be a little bit higher priced in that context and the carrots might be a little lower priced in context but it's all about what it comes out on the average because most purchases are going to be in that group in that grouping and i really like something that you said about about value that you're really increasing the value to your customer by making the pricing easy because it gives you more time to do that thing that customers are actually coming and paying for when they buy your radishes which is time spent talking to Curtis. Absolutely. Because I mean, we're continuously training gardeners. We're continuously encouraging people to be gardeners. And, and a lot of people will say to me, well, aren't you worried that, you know, you're just going to train all these people and they're going to grow food and they're never going to shop at your market. No, it's actually the opposite is true because that's sort of a scarcity mindset type approach is being afraid of through sharing that people are going to not shop at you. But I find the opposite is true is the abundance attracts more abundance. The more I encourage people to garden and eat healthy and teach them more about this, they might garden. They probably will. And that's great because once people garden and they have the fresh taste of something, a carrot that comes out of the field eaten right there, they will never go back to low quality stuff. So what happens is it actually turns them into big advocates. It turns them to be out, turns them into outspoken advocates that will continuously advocate for fresh. And they and the reality is they're not going to garden year round. There's always going to be times that they're going to buy stuff from us, but they're going to tell all of their friends, "You must go get Curtis's carrots because they're so fresh." And I think most people who garden. I mean, no matter how much education you give them about it, they don't understand even just the very simple things like succession cropping. So you end up with, you know, most gardeners put in a garden on Memorial Day and yep. they take it out on Labor Day. Exactly. And they might get, I mean, they might get a crop of carrots, but it's one crop of carrots. That's right. That's right. Because mo most people don't have the time to just do it, right? Right. Right. And, and the, I mean, time, the space, the, the knowledge, the, the initiative at the end of the day, when you've come home after a long day at work and want to go out in the garden. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's just, it's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. And, and I think it's something we oftentimes forget about as farmers, you know, it's like, it's our job to get up and go out there, yeah. you know? So you do it, whether you feel like it or not, mm -hmm. you're for your customers who garden, they're, they're making choices. That's right. It's not just automatic. The other thing that, that we hit on before the break was you were talking about your walk-in cooler mm -hmm. and how important that was to your operation. And, and I know that when, when we built our walk-in cooler, it, 
it it changed everything on our farm. And we started our farm intending to build a walk-in cooler. And it took us until about August to get it done. And up until that point, we were doing exactly what we talked about. We were harvesting, you know, some stuff on Thursday, almost everything on Friday. Stuff's going into the basement of the farmhouse where it was maybe 65 degrees, right. holding it overnight, <laughs> pulling it back out again, going to farmer's market and selling it. And the week that we got that walk-in cooler, all of a sudden, we were only selling one day a week, but suddenly we were able to harvest over a five-day period. That's the key. Yep. And it made such a difference. Yep. Yep. Not only does it make a difference in your workflow because it gives you more optionality, right? Because you can choose the optimum time to harvest any particular crop depending on whether the – or the – um the fragility of that crop, you know, you, so you've got that, but you also extend your marketing period of that crop because here's the way I look at it, Chris, is if you're composting or giving away product that you farmed, you're losing big time because what had, what had to happen before that crop went to market, a lot of things, right? You and I both know very well that to get any particular product to market, whether it's an animal product or it's a field crop, takes a lot of preliminary work. So by the time you go to that market, if you give that product away because it either spoils or you donate it somewhere, which, which is fine, nothing wrong with doing that, um, th but you're losing. You're losing a lot because all the work that went into it was huge. So this is why farmers, you must have cold storage. You must have proper commercial cold storage because otherwise you're going to lose and your profits can go downhill very quickly. If you're composting half of the products you grew in any particular week, chances are if you really break down the numbers, you're losing money. So we're consistently tar targeting selling 90% or more of our products. So talk to me about this idea of commercial cooling because a lot of people are trying to figure out how to make how to make their, their coolers come together with less capital output. Well, the, the, but it sounds like you've kind of skipped over that. Well, we, we I mean, I've got two restaurant-style walk-in coolers. So they're, they're small walk-ins, but we can throw, you know, entire bins of stuff in there. We'll, we'll start, we'll, we, want, we run one of them 24-7, you know, all year. One of them comes on only for our harvesting and portioning um, stuff. But, you know... I think the best way to build a walk-in cooler today, the most cost-effective way is to use the CoolBot system. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's that little piece of electronics that you wire up to an air conditioner. Yep. Um, that is, is so cheap. I mean, I've seen people build walk-in coolers for $500. You do, a, you do a framing with two by fours, frame in a corner of your garage or frame in a room, insulate it with R40 sort of blue styrofoam, do a vapor barrier. Get a $200 air conditioner from Home Depot and then hook a cool bot up to it, which is maybe two or $300, and boom, you've got a commercial walk-in cooler. You don't have to go and buy something fancy. I encourage people to do that because the compressor of a walk-in cooler is the most expensive part of the unit. If you buy right. a brand new restaurant-style commercial walk-in cooler, it might cost $6,000. The compressor is probably worth four or more. The, the, the insulated foam walls are the cheapest part of it. And if you can, if you know how to modify these things, it's so easy. Go to their website. They show you how to do it. That means you can, you've got a lot of optionality because now you can buy a walk-in walk cooler that doesn't have a functioning compressor and you can replace that compressor for $500 or less. 
It's great. The the one thing that I've always had concerns about about the Coolbot is it's just its ability to suck the heat out, you know, and I do think that's it might be well, I don't know and I I don't have any personal experience with the Coolbot. My feeling's always been that it it didn't quite do as good of a job of actually pulling the heat out of the product as getting a big commercial cooler well, co- or a big, big commercial cooling of, unit. Of course there's going to be a difference there between a big compressor, but you, all you do is stack them. Like if you if you it dep- and it depends on the products you're growing and how big the walk-in cooler is, so if you if you need to cool it down quick, then you run two air conditioners with two Coolbots. It's, that's all it comes down right. to. And I've seen, I've seen multi-acre farms with 12 by 12 by 8 size walk-in coolers with even three uh, air conditioners and three cool bots effectively running just like a compressor. Well, and I love the idea that, that in that time when you're getting started and capital's pinched and you, you, know, you haven't sold any radishes yet – that you've got a way to at least get something in there because certainly having something's better than nothing and then being able to upgrade as you go along. And, and that approach you're talking about, being able to stack them would certainly allow for that. Well, that's exactly it. And, and, and that's like, you know, opening that, that, con- that concept up a bit more. That's been a real key concept on our farm is, 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 is recapitalizing as we go. Because I often find the, it seems counterintuitive, but one of the things that kills farms the quickest, even kills businesses, is too much capital up front. You got too much money to put into something right away, and you haven't really play tested the market to see where things are going to go. I'm a big fan of starting really tiny and incrementally growing as you see fit based on your experience with that ecosystem of the marketplace. Is, you know, instead of going in with 100 grand and just taking some guesses on what you think you need is start really small because it forces you to make very calculated and conservative decisions that are based on real-time information that exists in the marketplace or even in the field. Well, and, and ideally it lets you, it lets you keep from making big mistakes. I mean, you know, you'd hate to go out and buy a $5,000 piece of equipment that isn't exactly what you need yeah, it isn't necessary. on your scale of farm. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I mean, it's way better to start small because at the end of the day, if you if you buy a five hundred dollar unit and discover after a year you need something bigger, well then you can just sell that for five hundred bucks or modify it to make it bigger, opposed to going and buying a ten thousand dollar unit and going, whoa, this is way too energy intensive. It's not exactly what we need. But now you've got to sell a ten thousand dollar unit, where it's easier to sell something smaller or even just take the loss of making that small investment at the beginning, opposed to the large one. So. When you talk about that, then the, I mean the infrastructure. You've got the coolers. Um, do you have a Do you have a packing shed area yeah, where you're yeah, working? Yeah, we've got a, a po- we've got a couple post harvesting areas. Uh, we've got one that's an open air, very simple lean to that's built off my house. That's ma- our main season packing area, and so the coolers are right by there. We've got a washing table there. We set up tables for packing and portioning, but we also I built a new greenhouse this year. It's a fully um, insulated passive solar greenhouse with a climate battery three feet under the ground um, that we use that on the cold shoulder seasons and the winter so that even has a walk-in cooler in it it's basically a standalone growing and operating unit on our farm you said it's it's got a heat storage battery in it can you tell me about tell me about what you mean i think i know what you're talking about but i want to make sure it's essentially we've built this 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 thing's like a house it's built like a house that has a foundation and all around that foundation is a three inch wide 
R40 insulation that goes all around the side of the foundation and all the way underneath it. We excavated all the mineral soil underneath and then we started we insulated the bottom and then started to put that dirt back. But about six inches after that first layer of dirt, we ran perforated big O piping underneath the whole greenhouse. Kind of like how people will take PEX tubing and run it through a, a, a concrete slab to create yep. for heating. And so we've done the same thing. And then we have an intake and an outtake on opposite corners of the greenhouse. And so once we put all that mineral back, we laid down about six inches of crush. That's our working floor. Uh, we could put a slab into it later if we want. But what happens is there's a there's a thermostat connected to a heat, uh, a fan, that basically once the temperature rises above 25 degrees Celsius in the greenhouse, it pumps heat underground and then it comes out the other way. So what happens is or after a growing season of storing that heat in the ground, that ground is charged once we go into winter that it basically radiates heat off the floor. Wow. So it's a passive way of heating it in a way. And we didn't really talk about climate in Kelowna. What, what kinds of, I'm curious, how cold does it get in Kelowna and then what kind of results are you getting out of that greenhouse? So we're, well, the greenhouse we just built this fall. So we we're it's in production now. It's been in production all winter. Uh, Having said that the climate battery wasn't fully charged because we built it in fall. It'll be really interesting to see how it charges up over the summer and then how it performs better into the winter. So I haven't seen the full effects of that yet. Um, as far as our climate, we're a zone 6B in downtown Kelowna. And somewhere about even a half a mile outside of where I am, there are zone 5. Uh, so we have the oh, benefit wow. of the heat island effect as well as the lake effect downtown. So we have actually a much warmer growing climate here than somebody just a mile outside the city really interesting okay and and i suppose that's a competitive advantage that you guys have compared to everybody else who's bringing in stuff bringing in produce from the countryside huge i mean right now we we, and we we do we do a lot of strategies with overwintering crops like right now we've got hundreds of pounds of spinach producing hundreds of pounds of carrots kale we've got microgreens that we're doing in the greenhouse all winter under you know you know controlled climate but even just in our field we've got spinach kale and carrots coming out the wazoo because we used appropriate overwintering strategies to have those crops available to market very early so when we show up to market at the first of april i mean we're selling to restaurants all in between but when we show up to farmers market first of april we've got a ton of product we don't have a ton of variety as far as crops but we've got at least three products that are from the field like kale spinach and uh, carrots, as well as all these microgreens, that we've got full-looking tables. So our our sales at our farmer's market actually start really strong, and then they taper down into the summer when more growers show up, and then we start moving more stuff to restaurants at that point anyways. And it doesn't really matter that they start tapering down, because like you said, you guys are harvesting everything when it's ready, and then figuring out how to sell it after you've picked it. Yeah, so there's risk involved there, but I mean... The, the, the thing is, is it streamlines our harvesting instead of because I know a lot of growers that go out and harvest for order or they harvest for market. We just harvest stuff and then it kind of forces us to sell it. It kind of forces us to get creative on how we sell. And so for me, it's a lot of personal relationships I've developed with chefs over the years that, you know, we publish a fresh sheet every Monday. But a lot of it is texting people like, hey, I've got a bunch of spinach right now. You know, it's a lot of this like close customer service type work that we do that that helps push that product. And probably something that's really helpful that you're selling, say, to chefs and not to 
retail stores is that I think they're more able to absorb those surpluses. They are, especially, you know, and especially the, depends on the kind of chef. Um, you know, the, the owner operator niche market type chef is generally more willing to change their menu on a day-to-day basis. Whereas the Michelin star, the, the, the large scale resort winery, luxury hotel type place can't because they've got so many, so many people in their kitchen that they can't just change their menu on a fly. So in our early season, that's kind of where we're looking at is if we've got stuff we didn't necessarily think we'd have, we have more than we thought, it's kind of pushing it to those people because it's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take it. I'll just change the menu tomorrow and put some stuff in there. Right. Any other tips about selling into the restaurant market? Oh, man, I got a lot of tips on selling to the restaurant market. I mean, one thing is... uh, Make sure you get paid. <laughs> restaurant restaurants are notorious for not paying their bills. And I actually grew up in the restaurant market because my dad started a small restaurant when I was young and he tried to franchise it out. And I kind of was like in my really formative years working there alongside of him. But, you know, you really got to um, structure how you get paid and be very forthcoming. And I, I tell people, if you're going to start selling to restaurants, if you, the best ones to start are like what I mentioned, the owner-operator niche market type ones where you've got maybe 20 tables tops, maybe three people in the kitchen. The owner is one of the chefs. They're the easiest kind of customers to start working with because they can they, they can just roll with the punches as far as your production goes. You don't have to be so dialed in. And the orders are small enough that they'll pay cash on delivery, which is very ideal when you're starting. Because once you get into larger type restaurants, resorts and wineries and hotels and stuff like that, they need consistent production. And if they can't get it from you, they'll get it from somebody else. So those customers can come and go really quickly. But they also will need to pay you on terms. Because when you're delivering $1,000 of product to one customer, they don't have $1,000 in cash in the till. And they've got an accounts receivable or payable person that those invoices are going to go to and you're going to get paid on terms. So if you're doing that kind of stuff, you need to do a lot of research to see, are they the kind of restaurant that's going to pay their bills? Like, how long have they been open? Or do they have big fluctuations in their days? Like, there's a lot of research you can do on, on, on a restaurant to figure out if they are the type of place that will pay their bills. Often, a lot of it has to do with just talking to other growers. You know, who you can, you can call a restaurant and pretend to be an pretend to be an, an overzealous customer and ask them where do you get your salad mix where do you get this and this and this and then figure out what those farmers are doing and offering them and then try to find a niche in there that maybe nobody else is catering to cuz i don't i don't i don't want to compete with other growers i don't want to take on a new restaurant customer and then discover that they already have three other growers and then go and step on those to- the toes of those growers i'd rather avoid that However, if the product they're getting isn't great and the price isn't great, then I can compete there. But I'm more interested in finding the path of least resistance. Like, What can I offer them that nobody else is and, and how can I find a little niche for myself there? Well, and I think a lot of times when you're when you're doing that, you're also finding things that maybe aren't as easy to grow or that, that other people in your marketplace are not finding ready success with, which gives you a little bit, bit of market protection against somebody coming in and undercutting your prices. Absolutely. I mean, and the, th- the thing for us, Chris, is we're just so focused on customer service. Um, wh- one thing that, that we do on our farm that most other growers can't do is because we're urban, we're so accessible. So I get some chefs that say, they'll call me on a Monday. Like we only deliver on Fridays usually, but they'll call me on a Monday and say, we got cleaned out on the weekend. Is it possible that I could send somebody to slide by the farm and grab some stuff? And it's like, absolutely. Cause we're accessible. We're in town. And no, no, not only can other growers can't compete with that, but even the big distributors can't compete with that. 
So it's all, it's like, it's all, it's all about, like we talked about in the farmer's market stuff. It's all about what values I can stack on there besides I'm a good product at a fair price. It's a convenience. And that's, that gives us a huge edge over other growers. And of course, part of that too is it's not just the values that you can stack on, but it's matching the customers who value the things that you can offer with that. Absolutely. And that's just a, a continuous process of refinement. Like I, I fire customers. I, I'll stop selling to some customers if, if for one, if they don't share their values, <laughs> mainly if, they don't, if I have to bug them to get paid every time, I'll stop delivering to them. I don't have time for that. Um, but you know, if, if they only want the products that I don't grow that much of, then I won't bother. Generally the way I approach it now is I only offer the things that I know I have an abundance and the things that I can scale to new customers. So if a new farm, if a new restaurant comes online and they ask what kind of products I do, you know, generally speaking, my, my one, my one pitch answer to that is we're a small farm. We specialize in small veg, baby root vegetables, baby greens, microgreens, quick growing things like baby tomatoes, baby patty pan squash. That's kind of simple. But if I know a new customer wants to come online and all of my baby veg and microgreens, or let's just say my baby veg and tomatoes are spoken for, the only thing I'll offer them is salad mix and microgreens because I know I can scale those. I can ramp up my greens production relatively quickly with even a 21-day lag because in the summer things are really mature quickly and that's when we're busy anyways. And in microgreens, I can scale that as much as I want because I can vertical, I've grow them vertically. I can ramp that up quickly. And so I'll usually develop a new customer relationship by just offering them the things I know I have. And I'm always about under promising and over delivering instead of saying, Oh yeah, I got this and this and this. And then they place an order and I say, Oh yeah, I can't do nine out of 10 of those items. All I can do this is I just, I set up expectations right away from the beginning to say, this is what I've got. This is what I know I can offer you. If we work together for a period of time, then I can start offering you more stuff. And it's kind of that scarcity thing that people, it's like abundance and scarcity. It's like, if I say, look, I'd love to sell to you, but I can't, people kind of go, well, I want to get in there. I want, they're, they're kind of, that kind of thing create, creates a sense of, um, of a, it's like, it makes them want to get in quicker. It's like, oh, well, he's so busy. Their product must be so good. We'll wait in line opposed to you know, let's just go to somebody who else has got it. They'll, they'll see the importance of how valuable the product is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of that same process of having people stacked up in front of your stand at farmer's market. Everybody goes like, Oh, stuff must be in short supply. Exactly. You know, yeah, it's a and, sense of and then they want it more sense of urgency. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. All right. So Curtis, we're going to, we're going to turn now to our lightning round, but before we do that, you mentioned to me, when we were talking before the show that, that you've got a special offer that you'd like to make to the, to the listeners of the farmer to farmer podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my book, the urban farmer, you can buy it anywhere. You can buy it on Amazon. You know, it's, it's available worldwide, but I also sell it myself from my website. So I can only offer this to United States and Canadian customers at the moment, but I have a product, a digital product that I sell with my book from my website and you can't get it anywhere else. And it costs $25. It's basically a series of videos. I've got four videos on how to do everything with microgreens, how I plant them. It's all very detailed stuff. I've got videos on how I use specific spreadsheets. And then I've got a video on there that's a topographic map of a farm plan that is a quarter acre that makes $80,000. It's like, this is how I plant this. This is where it goes. This is how I move these tunnels around. It's a basically a week-by-week play-by-play of a season. So that stuff's accompanying the book. I, I'll, I'll make an offer to your 
listeners, if they buy my book from my website, they, I will give them that for free. So they can go to my website, order the, pre, it's called the premium package. So if you're in the US, select US, order the premium package. It's the book plus the digital download stuff. And then I'll give you the digital download stuff for free. Put in a coupon code that says farmer to farmer, all one word, lowercase, and they'll get that digital package for free and uh, they'll get the book. Hey, Curtis, let me know after the show that you need to use a different code. If you're in Canada, farmer to farmer can all lowercase, all one word, all spelled out. I'll also repeat these at the end of the show and the links will be in the show notes as well. This book, The Urban Farmer, is is really a great book. You go through this in a lot of detail. You go through step by step about how to get things done. I mean, there's a lot of you don't really present it necessarily in the form of checklist, but there's a lot of things in there that kind of have that feel to it where it's not just it's not just some pie in the sky stuff written in a paragraph. It really is like, okay, if you know when you're thinking about this, put these seven factors in this order so that you can make the best decision possible. Mm -hmm. And, and you have a lot of that same kind of step-by-step stuff about how to get things planted or, or how to, how to do other activities on the farm. And I really, I really found a lot of value in that. It was one of those things. I think even if you're not an urban farmer, even if you're not a small plot farmer, there was some, I really liked the approach that you took with this, of this, this very stepwise linear process and, and not the whole book isn't laid out as this, this boring linear lecture format. But when you need to get into that, you've really boiled down the essentials about how do you go about making these decisions? How do you go about getting these tasks done? I thought it had some really great examples in there. Nice. Thanks. And, and I mean, one thing I tried to do with my book is, and I, I know for, for certain that my book is valuable to anybody who's not even an urban farmer. Not There's even people that are doing holistic management that have found my book useful because I have a lot of stuff dedicated to just marketing and business management and production systems and sort of encompassing ideas of what the approach is. And I mean, I have a whole chapter on irrigation. Basically, when I wrote that book, I... I looked at all the other books out there and I tried to focus on the weak links that none of them have. Like for example, in pretty much every book about market gardening or in like organic farming, the first chapter is talking about soil and compost. So I eliminated that. I don't even talk about that because everybody, it, there's tons of good information out there. I looked at what were the weakest links because before I even wrote this, I'd been consulting for farmers for years to show them my techniques and I consistently find the weakest links are things like the business management stuff, the market research, the just marketing. And one thing too was irrigation. So many farmers don't know anything about irrigation. So I wrote a whole chapter on irrigation and have specific examples of that there because I was figuring, you know, why would I want to repeat what's already been repeated? There's so many great books out there like Elliot Coleman's books or Jean-Martin Fortier's book. Why compete with that? Why not just offer something that nobody else has talked about? Yeah. And I, I stand by everything you said about what's in that book. So nice job on that, by the way, Curtis. Thank you. So, okay. So lightning round. What's your favorite tool on the farm? My smartphone. Okay. And what... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do you have a particular smartphone that you uh, that yeah, you just, like better an, than something else? I've got an iPhone. Um, the thing that I like about the iPhone is that it has the Siri program, so it 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 records text. So I go into Evernote when I'm like what you said with your journal, and I'm experiencing things in the the farm, like whether I'm I'm say I just plant something, I'm I'm talking into my phone. I open my Evernote, that's my planting sheet, and I go bed one, segment two, arugula. Right. That, that records it in. So when I when I go back into my spreadsheets to input that data in there, all I'm doing is it's on my computer because it's synced. 
So it's fast. And, I, and I, I'm a really big fan of spreadsheets. In fact, whole chapter on that in the book too, about recording information so that you can use it to leverage your experience and your learning curve. And I really like the idea of, of what you talked about, getting, getting the raw data organized into Evernote, moving it into a spreadsheet on a regular basis so that then you've got, you've got the data that's relevant right there in front of you when it's time to be making decisions, which isn't necessarily what you want to be doing on the 1st of August. No, exactly. You know, you, but you still need to understand like what was the information. And it's, it sounds like you don't just do that with, with strictly numerical stuff, that it's, it's a lot of other other information as well that's going into those spreadsheets. It is. Like I have all kinds of different spreadsheets as well. And, and again, whole chapter on that in the book. And in fact, people can download my spreadsheets for free from my website. They just go to free extras. They go to the urbanfarmer.co slash book, free extras. Um, you just sign up and you get this download. That's a, it's a sample fresh sheets, sample land contracts, and sample um, spreadsheets of the exact spreadsheets that I use. Huge resource. Thank you, Curtis. Um, what's your favorite crop to grow? Salad mix. For sure, salad mix. I enjoy, I love salad. I love greens. And I love the optionality of the salad mix because there's many crops that go into it. It, give, it gives a lot of flexibility to a farmer. If I'm short on one thing one week, then I just put more of another thing in it one week. I love that freedom that it offers. And it's just, it's something that people really know us for. And it's a high value crop. I mean, the scalability is great. There's just so many options in a salad mix that I love. And because, you know, I've got six different things that I put in a salad mix regularly. Uh, I can also sell most of those individually. Like I can sell red Russian kale individually, arugula individually, baby spinach. I can sell mustard greens individually if I want. And then I can sell lettuce individually if I want. But yet all those things together make, make a salad mix. And I just love that freedom and flexibility that that offers us. Awesome. What do you do for fun? <laughs> um, I play music. I'm still, I still am a musician. In fact, I'm actually on my way back to Montreal next week to do a reunion gig with my old band. Um, I play board games. I love board games with my friends. I cycle. I'm a pretty avid cyclist. Um, but to be honest, Chris, I love what I do and I have fun, a lot of fun with it. So I make, I have a YouTube channel that, um, you know, maybe your listeners, there's tons of free information. I put at least one video up a week, often three. Um, I love making YouTube videos. I love sharing the content. I love, I love the stories I hear from other people saying how helpful it's been for them. So that's a big part of where, where I'm at right now is I just have fun making this content and sharing it with people. Cause before I got into farming, I was a total music nerd. I was really big into editing sound and I found the editing video and doing all that kind of stuff is really fun for me now. So it's become my hobby and something that I'm very passionate about as well. It's awesome. And I'd, I'd say definitely worth checking out and I'll make sure that we get the URLs for those into the, into the show notes. But right now, I mean, if somebody wanted to go and find those videos on YouTube, what's, what's the easiest way to do that? Just put in urban farmer Curtis Stone in YouTube and you'll, and you'll get my channel. Love the power of search. Yep. <laughs> All right. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh, man, that's so easy. I would say don't take on too much. I took on way too much right away. Like, Chris, I started at a quarter acre. And then in that year, I was at a half an acre. Then the next year, I was at an acre. And then the next year, I was at two and a half acres. 
looking back at where I am now, I mean, I'm on a third of an acre. I went from two and a half acres to a third of an acre because I realized how I started was actually the best way to do it. I just didn't really learn all the nuances of the crops, customers, and techniques I was using. Whereas if I were to start again tomorrow, I would start with a quarter acre and I would really learn all the nuances by micromanaging that system just better instead of so many farmers just take on too much stuff. It's actually, that is the number one fail point I see with farmers. As I can consult for them and I say, what are your best crops? What are your worst crops? And they've got way too much going on. Everybody wants to do animals right away. They want to do veggies. They want to do eggs. They want to do everything. And they just take on way too much responsibility. And the fail point with that is that when you have too many things going on, you don't learn all the subtle nuances of each of those things because you're just constantly trying to catch up. Whereas if you start with 10 products, pick the best 10 products. Sometimes you got to do a little bit more for the diversity stuff, and that's okay. But focus on 10 things, 10 products, and really dial in all the nuances of those. Track the information. What is the average day to maturity of that crop? How long does it take to mature in the spring? How long does it take to mature in the summer and fall? Somebody, you need to know all of those things. How do the how does the price point vary from season to season? Like all those things, the the less you have to manage, the better you can set yourself up in the future by understanding all the little idiosyncrasies of those particular products. Awesome. I love it. I just think that's such an important message. Curtis, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. I think you've added a ton of value for our listeners. And it's just and that's, I mean, that's what I think this show's all about. So I really appreciate everything you brought to this interview today. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Huge fan and totally honored to and privileged to be on your show. And I'd love to be back on again sometime. All right. Thanks, Curtis. All right. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 58 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Stone. That's S-T-O-N-E. That show notes page, that has all of the links that Curtis mentioned in the show. But just real quickly, while we've got you on audio, Curtis's website is theurbanfarmer.co. So that's .co. If you go there to buy his book, which I highly recommend doing if you don't already have it, select the premium package on his book page to get his book plus a bunch of bonus materials if you use the coupon code farmer to farmer if you're in the US and farmer to farmer can if you are in Canada. Both those are lowercase and everything's spelled out uh, with no spaces. Curtis is also offering a $100 discount on his online course available at ProfitableUrbanFarming.com using those same discount codes. And again, this is all available in the show notes at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com. Just search for Stone and you'll find this episode page. If you enjoy the podcast, I'm I'm willing to bet you'd enjoy my weekly newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to an ever-growing circle of listeners. And to me, that's what it's all about. One more thing, I want to say I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the contact form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thanks for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 